This is the Asian Madness Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Welcome to another episode of the Asian Madness Podcast. I would just like to address some things before I begin this week's episode. Please bear with me for the time being. I promise it won't take up too much of your time. So, I know I've been extremely absent and my schedule is really messed up lately. I hate it when personal life issues messes with my will to podcast. I appreciate all of your emails and messages and thoughts. It really makes things better knowing that people actually like me and my podcast. Hmm, who would have thought? So, two weekends ago, I was at CrimeCon, and it was awesome. I highly recommend it. I met so many old and new friends, like my CrimeCon buddy Ellie, Cammie, Robin Warder from The Trail Went Cold, Gen Y, Justin, and Aaron, Mike and Scott from Dark Poutine. Jamie from Murderish, Simone from Murderish Minor Shakila Kids, Tyler from Minds of Madness, Erica from Southern Fried True Crime, Mike and Gibby, Mysterious Circumstances Justin, Esther and Yolanda, Shane from Out of the Shadows, and man, so many more. I also got a few more listeners. Shout out to Rick and Jen, if you guys are listening, I hope. I also got to meet one of my true crime heroes, Dr. Henry Lee. That was epic. He's like the typical nice Asian grandpa. Okay, so if CrimeCon isn't your thing, there will be a true crime podcast festival happening in Chicago on July 13th. If you're interested in meeting other fellow true crime podcast friends, or you want to meet me for some odd reason, you should definitely try to make it. Lastly, I am positive you guys noticed my change in intro and intro music. I would like to thank the one and only Captain from True Crime Garage for helping me out. He always looks so busy and so unapproachable at CrimeCon, taking a million photos with fans and talking to them. But I saw him actually alone one night. Shocking. So I decided to go say hello. Well, it did help that I had an old-fashioned and a southern comfort. We had a good talk, and he promised to make me an intro song, and here we are. I thought he was kidding, but I guess the captain doesn't joke about these things. I really, really love my new intro music, so I hope you guys like it too. Okay, that's enough rambling from me. Let us begin today's episode. Macau, officially known as the Macau Special Administrative Region of the People's Republic of China, is a tiny region located in southern China. As the name suggests, it's officially an administrative area of China, but they have their own currency and their own government. In a way, it's very similar to Hong Kong. Macau is connected to Guangzhou province in China by land, and you can also take a ferry to get to Hong Kong. 
Size-wise, it is about 12.7 square miles, and population as of recent is about 650,000. It is also one of the most densely populated areas in the world. The official language in Macau is Mandarin Chinese and Portuguese, but Cantonese is also widely spoken and used. Ethnicity-wise, about 90% are of Chinese ethnicity, and minorities include Filipinos, Vietnamese, and Portuguese. Macau's Human Development Index rates very high on the chart and has the fourth highest life expectancy rate in the world. It's a very cool and very safe place. In a sense, it's like the mini version of Las Vegas, but located in Asia. Before we dive into the history of Macau, here's a little info on how the name came about. Originally, according to a written record from the 1500s, Macau was known as Amagang, where Ama is the name of the sea goddess and Gang is literally harbor, so Ama Harbor. Later on, the Portuguese came over and were like, cool piece of land, what's it called? The locals misunderstood and thought they were asking for the name of the temple, which was called Ma Kok. So it went from there and eventually became Macau. Now, on to history. So the area we know of as Macau was a part of the Han Dynasty, the second imperial Chinese dynasty from around 206 BCE to 220 CE. To put it plainly, it didn't really stand out or anything, so it just kind of existed. It wasn't until the conquering Europeans arrived that things began to change. Europeans first began by establishing trading ties with southern China, and when things kind of began going south, they were banned from present-day Hong Kong. The Portuguese merchants refused to give up and eventually shifted to present-day Macau to continue their trade business. Portuguese merchants eventually repaired their relationship with China and were officially granted a permanent lease for Macau in 1557. Macau began to flourish and reached its peak in the late 1500s. The Dutch did at one point try to take over Macau in 622, which resulted in the Battle of Macau, but the Portuguese successfully got rid of them. But good things don't last forever. Things went into a decline when Japan stopped trading with the Portuguese, Portugal was busy fighting Spain in 1640, and a Portuguese territory in Malaysia was being taken away by the Dutch. In the late 1600s, a lot of political events were happening in China, which ended up affecting the market. They were more and more heavily regulated by the Chinese government, and it wasn't until the opium trade began that Macau began flourishing again. Then the Opium War happened, also known as the Anglo-Chinese War. This war is pretty complicated, but allow me to side story here. Basically, the British were unhappy with how the Chinese were conducting trade, so they decided to smuggle opium into China and getting the Chinese people addicted. When the Chinese government tried to stop opium trade, they failed and went to war with the British. They lost and were forced to sign a series of unequal treaties, giving the British a lot of power and also giving them Hong Kong. Now, back to Macau. Post-First Opium War, Hong Kong then became the major port for trading, but because China was defeated, the Portuguese took advantage of their weakness and vulnerability and became more assertive. The Macau situation continued on until after World War II, 
though the U.S. did bomb Macau after hearing that Portugal planned to sell fuel to Japan, the enemy. When the Chinese communists, a.k.a. Mao, began to rise up, Portugal lost Macau, but not completely. Macau then became a Chinese territory under Portuguese administration for a while longer, but they officially agreed to transfer Macau to China, and after 442 years under Portuguese rule, Macau became a special administration under China on December 20th, 1999. As soon as the colonization came to an end, Macau's casino industry began operating and foreign investors were allowed to come and invest. The economy grew super fast and Macau is known as one of the richest economies in the world. This is why it is known as Asia's mini Vegas. It's got tons of casinos and fancy ass hotels like the Venetian. I love this place personally because it's small, safe, and easy to get around. It's a perfect place to go for a mini getaway where you can just chill in a fancy five-star hotel and eat and sleep and maybe gamble a bit if that's your thing. Macau may be tiny, but you can see a lot of history there. Chinese style and Portuguese style, as in those very bright colored buildings. Lots of roads and buildings have Portuguese names, and Macanese residents, as in people from Macau, also get a Portuguese passport. That's so awesome. Okay. As tiny and amazing as Macau may be, crime is still a thing. And this crime is especially intense. When somebody makes a wrong choice in life, they may tend to go down a bad path and instead of correcting their wrong choices, they will continue down that path. So this case is somewhat like that. One man will end up shocking society with his choices and even till death, he denies it. I can't say much about his guilt or innocence, but here's the case and you can be the judge. I have known about this case since ages and ages ago, and I cannot believe that I forgot about this. I would like to thank my friend Eugene for suggesting this case, because it's such an interesting one. This is the case of a man who completely lost control over money and gambling, and eventually ends up murdering 10 people, or allegedly murdered. Let's begin. Macau is a safe place, low crime rates, all that stuff. So you can imagine how traumatizing and shocking it was when multiple severed limbs began washing into the shores of the Haksa Beach in Macau around noontime on August 8, 1985. There were people hanging out on the beach, swimming in the ocean, and when they discovered these limbs, they immediately notified the police. There were a total of eight limbs, four right feet, two left feet, and two hands. Two days later, a dog was spotted on the beach with a woman's left hand in its mouth. Three days later, a police officer found a woman's right hand, and another swimmer found a right heel. Yes, a heel. I assume it may have broken off from the feet? So in the very least, they know that there were at least four to five victims. Initially, the police assumed it could have been illegal immigrants trying to get to Macau by boat, but instead got torn apart by sharks. But no, that couldn't have been the case, because the severed parts were clean cuts, not torn apart and messy. The body parts had been floating in the ocean for at least a few days before they were discovered, so it was really difficult to piece them together just by looking at it. What's even more suspicious is that some of the fingerprints that were still there seemed to have been destroyed, 
I'm sure we cannot blame the sharks anymore. This was clearly alarming, so the police department immediately formed a task force to investigate these body parts. They documented everything and did, you know, 80s forensics, but it led them nowhere, and the trail went rather cold for about eight months. So what happened? Who was responsible? Who were these victims? In April of 1986, about eight months after, things finally took a turn when the police department received a letter from a man in Guangzhou province in mainland China. A Mr. Cheng had written a letter to the police in Macau requesting assistance in finding his brother. Here is a rough translation of the letter he wrote. My brother, Cheng Lin, arrived in Macau years ago, worked hard, and established a business. Unfortunately, I have not been able to get in touch with him since last August, and his hard-earned business has now been taken over by a man with the last name Huang. I have heard of the severed limbs discovered on the beach, and I am afraid that could be my brother and his family. I asked the police to help investigate and find my brother. Boom. I think you now know exactly where this case is headed. This letter was not a tell-all, but it was definitely a good start to a case that was gruesome and growing cold. It was a good thing that the letter writer helped connect the dots for the police, as in the limbs to his missing brother. So the police looked into the family that the letter mentioned. Cheng Lin, the brother of the letter writer, was a 50-something-year-old man who ran a restaurant in Macau along with his wife, his five kids aged 7 to 18, his wife's mother, his wife's aunt, and his own cousin who was working as the restaurant's chef. All ten people had pretty much dropped off the radar since August of 1985, and strangely enough, no one reported them missing or even really seemed to notice till the letter arrived eight months later. Police decided to go check the restaurant owned by Cheng Lin, named the Eight Immortals Restaurant. That's obviously a translated name because it really makes more sense in Chinese. When the police arrived at the restaurant, they found the Mr. Huang that the letter mentioned. Huang's full name was Huang Zihen. When the police questioned him, he denied any involvement or knowledge in the disappearance of the Cheng family. Yes, he knew the family, but he insisted Cheng Lin handed the restaurant over to him because the family decided to move to China or Canada or something. He wasn't really sure. He had no idea where or why they decided to leave, but one thing he knew was that they asked him to take over the restaurant. So, that's exactly what he did. You can't arrest a man for helping out a friend, right? So, who exactly was this kind, helpful man? Funny, I know. He's probably the exact opposite of kind and helpful. He was originally from Canton Province in mainland China, but moved to Hong Kong. He's always been into gambling and that sort of thing, and that's where his problems began. While he was living in Hong Kong in the late 60s, he did some funny business and was thrown in jail for five years. After he finished serving his sentence, he married a woman, and the two had two sons and one daughter. But that's not all. After he was out of jail, he got into a dispute with a man over money. In November of 1973, he visited a man with the surname Lee to ask to borrow some money. I suppose Huang didn't have the best track record with money borrowing and gambling, so Lee refused to lend him money. 
Huang got mad because how dare anybody not lend him money? So he attacked Li, Li's wife, and his sister. He tied all three of them up and proceeded to drown Li in the bathtub. After killing Li, he then decided to light the house on fire, probably to make it look like the three died in a house fire. Unfortunately for him though, the wife and the sister managed to break free and they ran for their lives. He had failed in destroying and killing his witnesses, so now he had to go on the run, leaving his family behind. He headed back to his home in Canton, China, and there he met a woman in his neighborhood and the two fell in love. Side note, isn't it frustrating how these murderers and criminals have a better love life than, I don't know, so many of us? Anyway, because Huang knew that police would be searching for him, he took the initiative to cut off the tip of his left index finger, burn off the rest of his fingertips, and then took his new wife and ran away to Macau. I wonder if she at any point wondered what the heck was up with that. Or worse, she knew but was like, all you need is love, man. So clearly we already know Huang isn't the friendly neighbor. He's mean, he's violent, and a murderer. But the police in Macau didn't know about Huang and his past at the time. Huang had been using another name before arriving in Hong Kong, so that made it more difficult to track him down. During the visit to the restaurant, the police looked around, asked Huang some questions, but that was it. They did not find anything especially incriminating, and although his words and testimony was not necessarily believable, it didn't mean he was lying or anything. There just wasn't any kind of proof. The police then began putting heavy surveillance on Huang, hoping it would lead them to some kind of breakthrough. In the meantime, one of the fingerprints from one of the washed-up limbs came up as a close match to the wife of the restaurant owner. Police proceeded to talk to anyone who had any link or business dealings with the missing Cheng family. Out of the 20 people they talked to, Two accounts immediately stood out to police. One delivery man told police upon questioning that he had stopped by the restaurant on August 4th, 1985. Everything seemed normal and the restaurant was operating as usual, but when he returned the following day to make another delivery, he saw that the restaurant was closed with a note taped on the door that read, Business closed for three days. He wasn't sure what to make of it. I guess he would have been notified if the restaurant was planning to take a three-day holiday, so he assumed something urgent may have come up. He also stated that he dropped by the Chang home to check in on them, and instead of seeing anyone from the Chang family, a strange man had come to the door telling the delivery man that the family had gone on a trip to mainland China. Another witness came forward with another story regarding the disappearance of the missing wife's aunt. According to a neighbor, a young man, maybe around 30 years of age, had come by the aunt's home on August 5th the day the restaurant was found shut down. He had told her to come with him, explaining that the Cheng's youngest son, which would make him her great-nephew, was feverish and that the family needed her assistance at the restaurant. The aunt left with the unknown man and was never seen again. These two witness accounts seemed to be extremely credible for the police, so they were like, Okay, say no more. He has to be our guy. But then again, the suspect... Huang was in his 50s at the time. The man the neighbor described was around 30. 
Either they are terrible at telling a person's age, or there might be someone else working with Huang. Huang kind of realized that he was on the radar, and he knew it was probably only a matter of time before the police came back and questioned him some more. And who knows, maybe next time they might even have witnesses with them, or, God forbid, evidence. He played it cool for a little while longer, all the while planning his exit. Finally, on September 28, 1986, he packed up some of his stuff and tried to return to China. At the immigration border control area, he was immediately flagged down and the police were notified of Huang's attempt to leave. Huang was taken into custody and tried to play it off by saying he was only heading back for business and family reasons. He denied killing or getting rid of the 10 missing people, but he did give up one piece of incriminating information. The restaurant owner, Cheng Lin, allegedly owed Huang about 600,000 Macanese pataka from gambling, which would be about 83,000 US dollars back in 1985. He said that Cheng Lin did not have that much money to pay him back, so they settled the amount by having Cheng Lin hand the restaurant and his other assets over to Huang. Then the entire Cheng family up and left Macau. Police found that to be not too credible. How does a family of 10 just leave without anyone noticing? Now that the police had probable cause, they went to the restaurant and Cheng Lin's home to search for clues. Inside Huang's safety deposit box, they found Cheng Lin's safety deposit box key, his identification card, his children's birth certificates, and copies of their education enrollment records. First of all, you can't leave Macau and go into China or anywhere else without your identification card. And also, your children's info is important. You don't just leave that lying around. And not like any of this was useful to Huang. Fishy, indeed. So, of course, Huang couldn't get out of this mess. He was indicted just a few days later and was thrown into prison, probably where he really belongs. His cellmates had all heard of what he was accused of, and he was beaten up so severely he was admitted into the hospital. He even tried to commit suicide, but was sent to the hospital again and made it back alive. After a few tough days in prison, he finally decided to talk. Here was his account of what happened on August 4th, 1985. Huang and the Cheng family go way back. They were regular mates in gambling and mahjong, so I'd say their friendship would have its ups and downs. It's hard to maintain a good friendship when money is involved. That's my opinion, at least. So, sometime in the year 1984, the two were doing their usual gambling, and Chang had lost approximately 180,000 Macanese pataka to Huang. That is not a small amount at all, especially in the 80s. Chang did not have that much money on him or anywhere near him at the time, so he told Huang that he would pay his debt within the year, and that if he wasn't able to pay up, he would gladly hand over his restaurant as payment. Note, it was all just a case of he said, he said. No one bothered to write anything down on paper. It was all done verbally. So you kind of see where this is going? Over the next few months, Huang tried unsuccessfully to collect what was owed to him, and every time he confronted Cheng, Cheng would not give him any money. Up to this point, shit sounds frustrating, doesn't it? Well, the situation dragged on, and Huang was probably getting fed up. August 4th, 1985, rolls around, 
and Huang confronts Cheng once more after the restaurant had closed for the day. This time, Cheng got fed up as well and cursed at Huang, saying something along the lines of, I owe you something? You don't have proof. And that, my dear listeners, is something he sure doesn't have. Huang got so mad he picked up a nearby bottle, smashed it in half, and used a sharp end as a weapon. He grabbed Cheng's youngest son who was sitting near Huang and pressed the bottle up against his neck. Everyone froze and no one knew what to do. There were nine people from the Cheng family and one Huang. He used the youngest son to manipulate everyone into tying each other up. So now he has eight people tied up in the restaurant and he proceeded to tie up the youngest boy. Suddenly, there was chaos. Cheng's wife sprung up and started screaming for help and tried to get to her youngest son. And in the midst of the chaotic scene, Huang had grabbed a broken bottle and stabbed her in the neck. She died right then and there. Well, shit just got real and Huang decided to finish what he started. He began going around and killing every family member, either with the broken bottle or with his bare hands. He left the youngest son as the last victim, and before dying, the youngest boy had said to Huang, Great auntie won't let you get away with this. Powerful and mean last words for a little kid, right? At the end of this entire chaotic scene, ten people were dead inside the restaurant. Chang Lin, age 50, his wife, age 42, their five children, age 18, 12, 10, 9, and 7, the wife's mother, age 70, the wife's aunt, age 60, the restaurant chef, also Chang Lin's cousin, age 61. Huang admitted that he spent about 8 hours dismembering the bodies and stuffing them inside black garbage bags. He would then dispose them bit by bit in different areas so as not to arouse suspicion. If what he's saying is true, he sounds pretty damn quick, dismembering so many people in eight hours. Of course, I mean, I wouldn't know the average rate of human dismemberment. Just saying. So that was that. He pretty much confessed to the crime and gave all them details to the police. What do you think? Does it sound right to you? I mean, why wouldn't it be right? But before this terrible dude was able to go to court, he committed suicide one more time in December 4th. This time, they were unable to revive him and he was pronounced dead when they found him at around 8am in the morning. He had used the sharper end of a soda can pull tab to saw into his wrist. Just imagine, it sounds painful as hell. It must have been a slow and painful death, but hey... He did murder 10 people in his lifetime. I mean, more than 10. I suppose he was also having a terrible time in prison, considering the fact that he murdered an entire family, including little kids. Probably not the most popular guy in prison at the time. When his body was discovered, they also found a letter he had written explaining what really happened. Allow me to roughly translate and summarize it for you. September 28th. 2 p.m. The police wanted to ask me questions, so I sat there with them for more than 10 hours. I'm sure they were observing me during that time, and since I have never done anything worth hiding here in Macau, I wasn't too bothered. They asked me about the Eight Immortals restaurant, and I told them the truth, 
Everything from how I knew Cheng Lin and how I came to take over his restaurant. They questioned me for three consecutive days, four officers taking turns asking me the same questions over and over again. I was so tired, so exhausted, I ended up admitting to the crime. I am prepared to die over the sins I have committed in Hong Kong. The man I once was, no longer is. And from the moment I left Hong Kong, I was a changed man. I stayed away from illegal activities and wouldn't even dream of committing crimes. My oldest child just graduated and is now out there in the world. I should be able to enjoy my last years on earth with my family. Also, I have always thought of buying the restaurant from Chang, even before he owed me money. What I'm trying to say is, I did not commit this crime you accuse me of. My wife and youngest child of seven years have it the worst now. Society is unfair to them, and they are completely innocent. I was a bad person, but I am now a changed man, and I am willing to admit to my crimes. But my wife is from the countryside. She doesn't understand these things. She is a good woman. Why is society condemning her and not helping her out? I repeat, my suicide is not me running from my crimes. I have respiratory issues and I refuse to continue this treatment. Those near death tend to speak the truth. Okay, that was a really long letter and I tried my best. If you read Chinese, you are more than welcome to go check it out. I have to admit, this sort of made me doubt my initial aha uh-huh, conviction moment. I mean, on the surface, yeah, would he really lie about it prior to his death? But then again, he mentioned his wife and kids multiple times in the letter. So I feel like if he's guilty, the only reason he would be saying that he's not is to protect his family from further shame. Sure, they never had concrete proof and evidence that Huang did it. It just mashed the entire story, and for real... He was extremely suspicious. He was owed money and he killed them to take over their money and their property, basically taking back what he was owed. And don't forget, he did this once in Hong Kong years ago. Who is to say that he wouldn't do it again? But also, who is to say that he didn't change? I mean, he changed his entire identity, left his original family, fled to a new place with a new family... I suppose he would hate to screw that up. What do you guys think? Now that you guys have the full story, here are some things I want to clarify or discuss. How did no one notice a family of 10 disappear? The kids went to school. They had friends. I don't understand how no one noticed or even bothered to say anything. This actually does make me sort of wonder if they had said something about going away, so no one bothered calling the police or look around for them. Or everyone just assumed they were okay somewhere else and decided not to pry? I don't know. This part is confusing to me. Also, the 30-year-old person that went to get the wife's aunt. Who was that? The police concluded that the person was definitely not Huang. So, did he really have an accomplice? Or was it maybe his son? His son was in his early 20s. I mean, that's a lot closer to 30, right? Third bit of info. If you believe that Huang had indeed murdered the entire family, then you might want to know that it was rumored that he mixed some of the human remains with the pork and that he maybe put them in roasted pork buns to serve to customers. 
There is no actual proof, of course, but would it really be surprising? It is an easier way to get rid of human remains, and if you mix it in, people will still taste the pork, so it won't be super suspicious or anything. When this assumption was brought into the newspapers after the murders, the sale of roasted pork buns dropped dramatically. But hey, I love these buns. Lastly, some more human bones and remains were discovered on a beach in 1989, and it was later determined to belong to one of the 10 victims. Sadly, they were unable to recover any more parts. So let's discuss the movie version of this case. A movie based on this called The Untold Story was released in 1993, starring Hong Kong actor Anthony Wong. He really brought the character to life in that movie, I must say. The movie plot revolves around the assumption that he did murder the entire family, so he comes off extremely creepy. The movie takes on a slightly weird sense of humor, though, which I think is notable in many Hong Kong movies. You will have to watch it to find out. It's worth a watch if you can find it online or somewhere. They usually have subtitles. A couple more versions of this movie came out later on, but the 1993 one was the best one for sure. So, there you have it. The not-so-case-closed murder of a family of 10. I always assumed that Huang was definitely guilty, because how could he not be? But now I have a bit of doubt. Whether or not he did it, it was still a terrible crime, especially when the youngest victim was only 7 years old. The restaurant is obviously not there anymore, but I wonder if the place itself is haunted. Knowing Chinese people, there is probably a lot of superstition around that place. Remember to order steamed pork buns next time you go get dim sum. You will not be disappointed. Till next time. So before I go, obviously, I would like to thank the following people for their lovely reviews. There's Chaplain Teens, Megishly, Nacho Narwhal, Bahai Te, and Horsin' Around from Australia. Thank you guys so much. And for Patreon, it's been a while, but here goes. Uh, I would like to thank Thomas Reed for upping his pledge once more. You're too kind, really. I don't even think I deserve any of this, but I guess thank you. And Lacey Maxwell, Bill Tsai Tech Guy, Carla Hofstedler from There Might Be Cupcakes podcast, Sid and Meg Early, Rick Webster, and Samantha Tsai. Thank you, all of you guys, for being so, so supportive. I, I have to say I am really sorry about being away for so long, and um, I really do appreciate that you guys actually like what I do, and in a sense, CrimeCon kind of fueled my passion again and it also kind of got me out of that funk I was in a while ago so you know I really hope I'm back on track and I will continue writing and continue recording so just saying thank you to everybody who listens thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness podcast if you enjoyed my content Please rate and review me on iTunes. 
If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com.